Welcome to the serialized audiobook Nocturnal by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti. This novel contains adult situations, violence, and is meant for mature audiences. Nocturnal is available in print, ebook, and unabridged ad free audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash nocturnal. Chapter 9. A Hospital Visit Chief Amy Zhao stared down at Jebediah Erickson. He looked so much older than the last time she'd seen him. Of course, that had been 26 years ago, when he'd left the asylum. The asylum that she'd sent him to. Amy had once been a snot-nosed rookie who knew better than the older cops. She and Rich had put the pieces together, connecting the symbols to the silver arrowheads, tracking down Alder Jessup, quietly building a case against Jebediah Erickson, even as her superiors tried to shut her up, tried to get her to back off. They'd even promoted her to inspector as a form of hush money. She'd taken the promotion, but hadn't stopped. At the time, she thought it poetic justice that she used her new power to further her efforts. She'd found the right judge to hear her case. She'd lined up the right person in the DA's office. Back then, Erickson hadn't been some old man in a hospital bed, bandaged, loaded with tubes leading into his nose, his arm. Back then, he'd been death personified. Just looking into those remorseless eyes had made her cross herself. Now he just seemed old. Scars covered his arms, his neck, his chest. Nasty scars, too. Long, curving things that must have required hundreds of stitches. This man was a warrior. The scars told the story of his battles. God damn it, Brian, she said. You don't know what you've done. She should have fired Brian and Pookie sooner. Pookie couldn't let something like this go. The Blake Johansson situation had proved that. If Pookie smelled crooked cops, he went after them. Maybe she should have switched him to internal affairs years ago. If she had told Pookie and Brian the truth about Erickson, about the monsters, would those guys have pursued the case anyway? Based on their track records, she'd assume they would have done exactly that. And how could she hold it against them? They had done exactly the same thing she had done. When her efforts put Erickson in the loony bin, how many people had died from her stubbornness? More important, how many people would die now because of Brian's? This wasn't the first time Erickson had been out of commission. He'd been injured twice before that she knew of, but both times he'd left the hospital the very next day. This time, however, he didn't look like he was going anywhere. Was he just old, or was there something else? Hopefully he would recover soon, before Marie's children realized that they could once again kill at will. Chapter 10 Murder was the case. Sleeping until noon had a way of making anything more palatable. So Brian Clouser was a fleshy-headed mutant. So what? He was still Pookie's best friend. He had saved Pookie's life. Getting all worked up about this wasn't going to fix anything. Pookie would find a way to get his boy through this. Hell, it wasn't like Brian was a Yankees fan or anything really unforgivable. Emma danced around his feet. Pookie was supposed to just give one treat at a time, 
but he grabbed a big handful and dropped them on the kitchen floor. Life is short. Treats are good. He poured a cup of coffee from Robin's coffee maker. Nice machine. Everything the girl had was nice. Medical examiners, it seemed, earned a bit more income than homicide inspectors. He heard footsteps behind him, then a woman's voice. Did you make coffee? He turned with mug in hand. A sleepy-faced, yawning robin shuffled into the dining room. She wore only a black T-shirt that was too big for her, one of Brian's most likely. She sat at the table. Pookie poured a mug for her, then sat as well. She took a sip. I made a bunch of calls after you turned in. Then I ran out of steam. My friend Dana just called from the hospital, woke me up. Erickson is stabilized. He's better? Not even close, she said. He's still in intensive care. He hasn't woken up yet. A knife in the belly was worse than a bullet in the shoulder, but Brian's wound had healed up within hours. Erickson has the Zed. Why hasn't he healed? Beats me, Robin said. All I have is a hypothesis. I don't know anything about these people. You heard from Brian? Pookie hadn't, but he had received a voicemail from Brian's dad. Poor Mike was a mess. Maybe that was the price you paid for lying to your child your whole life, but Pookie wasn't about to judge. No word from Bri Bri yet, Pookie said. I think he's okay, so don't worry. She crossed her arms and slowly rubbed her own shoulders. He's not okay. Pookie, please just tell me what's really going on. She was hurting bad for Brian. She wanted to share Brian's pain, help him through anything, but it wasn't Pookie's place to tell her the truth. If Brian didn't want her to know, that was his choice, and Pookie had to back up. Oh, Bobbitt, you know what? As you've pointed out repeatedly, you're not his girlfriend anymore. It's none of your business. She laughed at him. Right. Now you're going to pretend he doesn't belong with me. You spent six months trying to get us back together. She leaned forward and put her hand on his wrist. Pookie, I made a mistake pushing Brian away. I love him. I also know him. Maybe not as well as you do, but I know him. And I think he's real close to doing something bad. If you don't let me help and something happens to him, you won't be able to live with yourself. He didn't have a one-liner this time. She was right, but that didn't change anything. Telling Robin, or anyone else, was Brian's decision alone. I can't, Pookie said. Her eyes narrowed. He had a sudden feeling that she was looking right into his brain with that magic chick power that women have. She turned and looked at the rap scan machine sitting on the table. Her eyes widened. She covered her mouth. Oh, my God. That second sample. It was from Brian. What had he said? Was it that obvious? Or had he done something to tip her off? He had to cover. And cover fast. Ah, come on now. Why would you say that? She turned angry eyes on him. That's why he went to see Mike. The second sample was XYZ, so Mike can't be his real father. Robin, the second sample wasn't Brian's. It was... She slapped the table. Stop it. We both know I'm right, so stop insulting my intelligence. 
She pointed her finger in his face. Don't you lie to me one more minute. You understand me? Pookie leaned back. He nodded. Okay. You're right. The anger broke. Tears welled up in her eyes. Oh, Jesus, now he had to deal with a crying woman? Take it easy. We'll figure something out. Brian is my boy. That's not going to change. This isn't about being boys, she said. I can't imagine what he's going through. Oh, my God. He went to confront Mike, and you let him go by himself? Huh? When she said it like that, it did sound kind of stupid. She wiped her eyes with the backs of her hands. I have to find him. He's all alone. If he's alone, it's because that's what he wants. She stood. This isn't about what he wants. It's about what he needs. You should have known that. As soon as she said it, he knew she was right. That Detroit-sized nuke had dropped in Brian's life, and Pookie had thought the man could handle it solo. He's still the Brian we know, Pookie said. He won't do anything stupid. She wiped her eyes again as she let out another derisive laugh. <laughs> you mean he won't do anything stupid like going to the house of a killer without a warrant or backup? Pookie's eyebrows rose. Touché, Bobobbin. Touché. His cell chimed the theme from The Simpsons. Robin walked to her bedroom. Emma padded along behind her. Pookie knew she was going to get dressed, then try to find Brian. There was no point trying to stop her. So instead, Pookie answered his phone. Black Mr. Burns, my day is already about as tasty as a St. Bernard turd rolled in rancid salmon poon. Whatever you have to tell me now is going to make my emotional boo-boos all better, right? Only if you like your salmon poon turd served with a side of tainted clams, John said. I finished that murder rate analysis. Pookie sighed. Ah, screw it. Go ahead. First, some perspective. San Francisco's population peaked in the 1950s at 775,000. Right now, it's about 767,000. Not much variation in the past 50 years. So the population is a constant against which we can evaluate murders on a basic one-to-one, year-to-year basis. Do you always talk like the band nerd that played the French horn? What? For example, when you fuck, do you say shit like, I'm going to insert my penis now, then move it back and forth in a rapid motion until one or both of us achieve an orgasm? Yes, but only when I'm banging your mom. For the second time that afternoon, Pookie's eyebrows rose in respect. Point taken, Mr. Burns. Continue. The highest murder rate in recent memory was 1993, with 133 murders. Things have been down lately. We haven't had over 100 since 1995. 27 years ago, however, there were 241 murders. That's the highest the city has ever officially recorded. What that doesn't take into account is the fact that in that same year, from January to June, there were 187 murders for an average of 31 a month. In July, it dropped to 19. After that, the murders dropped off to 7 a month, which is about the normal murder rate. Now, 
Guess when Jebediah Erickson was released from detention in the California medical facility. The coffee felt funny in Pookie's stomach. He felt like he was going to throw up. I don't want to guess. I'll tell you anyway. He got out that same July. Erickson gets locked in the loony bin, and a few months later the murder rate skyrockets. He gets out, things almost immediately come back down to normal. Yes, he was definitely going to puke. Vigilantism was one thing, but to have that kind of impact on a murder rate? There's more, John said. The crime spike wasn't just for homicides. Missing persons cases tripled in the same time frame, and serial killings were up 500%. Records indicate the Bay Area may have had seven serial killers in action at the same time. That shit never got released to the press, because Mayor Moscone sat on it like an ugly fat girl riding a willing drunk. See, when you talk like that, it makes all this death and despair so much more fun. I'm doing my best to make it more palatable. The jokes were automatic for Pookie, but he felt none of the humor. You said the murder rate didn't spike when Erickson first went in. It didn't. Things were normal for several months, then slowly ramped up to the levels I told you about. Pookie thought of a stuffed little girl holding a fork and a knife. Erickson probably hadn't killed her on a whim. Would people like that girl run wild if Erickson was out? More important, were there more creatures out there like the four-eyed bear thing? Chief Zhao's words rang through his head. She'd asked for his trust. She'd told him there was more going on than he could know. If only she'd just come out and explain this. But even then, would Pookie have gone along with it? Zhao had known he and Brian might push too far, possibly get Erickson committed again, leave the city open to mass murder. But they hadn't put him away. Instead, they'd put him in the ICU. One more thing, John said. I have a hypothesis about Erickson and why the killings didn't go up right away. Pookie made a mental note to write that down. Two friends using the word hypothesis in the same day? Maybe he was moving up in the world. Hit me, B&B. Do you know what a keystone predator is? Is it a Pennsylvania pedophile? No, but that was clever, John said. It's a predator that keeps a population in check. Like hawks that hunt lemmings, or sea stars that feed on sea urchins that would eat the kelp roots and therefore kill the kelp, throwing the whole ecosystem into crisis and... Get to the point, bro. Sorry, John said. A keystone predator keeps a prey population in check. Remove that predator you get a population explosion of the prey species. Let's say Marie's children were responsible for that murder spike. Maybe Erickson is their keystone predator. Take him out. The killers go crazy. Put him back in the ecosystem. He kills them or sends them back into hiding. Maybe both. Think about the things you said you saw in Erickson's basement. The bear thing. The blue bug. The shark-mouthed man. Had those once been lurking around the city, killing people? You think that 70-year-old Jebediah Erickson is the keystone predator of goddamn monsters? Yeah, John said. We fucked up, Pooks. 
If Erickson doesn't get out of that hospital, things could get real bad. Could get bad? Like they weren't bad enough already? John, thanks. It's a shitty picture, but now we know. Computers are my business, and business is good. Not just that, Pookie said. You really stepped up last night. If you hadn't come out, Erickson would have come in after us. It could have been Brian in the hospital, or in the morgue. I'm proud of you, man. John was silent for a few minutes. Thanks, he said finally. You got no idea what that means to me coming from you. Pookie heard the apartment's front door open and slam shut. Emma came treading into the kitchen. Ears up, she stared at him with a face that said, It's just you and me, kid. Burns, I gotta go. Do me a favor and call the Terminator. He won't answer, so just data dump all that goodness in his voicemail. If you reach him, though, call me. Will do. Pookie hung up. He walked to the kitchen and grabbed the half-empty box of dog treats. He was about to drop another handful, but instead just upended the box. Emma started eating them like they might suddenly grow legs and run away. Pookie headed out of the apartment to find his partner. Chapter 11 The Hidey Hole Rex paced. There wasn't much space to do even that. It only took ten steps to cross the room. A damp cold put a moisture sheen on the stone walls, making them reflect the candles that lit the room. The place looked like it had started out as a crack in the rock, then had been chipped away at to make room for a bed, a bookshelf, a table, and a chair. A skull sat on the floor in a corner. A human skull. Maybe someone had put it there to see if it scared him. It didn't. There were gouges in the skull's face bones, like someone had scraped at them with their teeth. Moldy books sat on the shelves. To pass the time, he'd tried to read one called On the Road, but he'd only made it five pages before the spine split and page six crumbled when he tried to turn it. He didn't want to read anyway. There were no clocks, yet somehow he knew the sun had already set. He could feel it. His whole life he had felt tired and sluggish during the day, had trouble sleeping at night. He'd always felt exhausted at school, felt slow, like the world was slipping by him in a way he couldn't understand. Well, now he knew why. The day was made for sleeping. Night was the time to hunt. There was a word for creatures that lived at night and slept during the day. Nocturnal. Rex paced. Sly would be back soon, and he would take Rex home. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Chapter 12 Alex The metallic sound rattled through the white room. Aggie and the Chinaman ran to the wall, put their backs to it, pressed their collars to the flanges as the chains started to rattle and draw tight. The boy with no tongue was lying flat on his back. Get up, boy! 
Get to the wall or that chain's gonna yank you. The boy's eyes opened. He looked at Aggie with an empty stare. Aggie had seen that look on the streets many times, the look of someone who's given up. The chain snapped taut, yanking the boy by his neck. That got his attention. His eyes scrunched tight with pain as hands flew to the collar. He slid along on his back, spitting up fresh blood. The chain pulled the boy up the wall until his collar clanged against the flange. He coughed and stared out, wide-eyed and confused. The white gate opened. Seven white-robed masked men came in. Wolfman, Darth Vader, Tigerface, Frankenstein, Dracula, Jason Voorhees. And was that the Green Power Ranger? Seven of them. And this time, two dragging sticks. Aggie's breath lodged in his lungs, stayed there like a rock that kept him from inhaling or exhaling. Who had the masked men come for this time? Wolfman, Tigerface, and Frankenstein headed straight for the Chinaman, who screamed in terror. The other four moved to the big boy. He screeched a mewling, sad sound that tried and failed to form words. Aggie's body sagged in relief. A guilty feeling of knowing joy at someone else's demise once again overwhelmed him, filled him with bottomless self-hate, but there was nothing he could do to help either of them. The white-robed men closed in on the boy. He kicked out, or tried to, but he slipped and fell, yanking the collar hard against his neck and chin. Before he could get his feet under him, the monster masks were on him, black-gloved hands reaching in, grabbing, hitting, pulling, holding. The Chinaman tried to fight, but he wasn't like that scrappy Mexican. The masked man easily overpowered him. Frankenstein reached in with his stick and hooked the Chinaman's collar. He screamed and cried as they dragged him out of the cell. Aggie looked back at the boy. Darth Vader hooked the boy's collar. The robed men wasted no time pulling him toward the door. The boy kicked. He screamed guttural sounds. Splatters and streams of blood bubbled out with each desperate breath, the red marking his path along the white floor. They took him out of the white cell, but this time the door didn't close. Aggie stared, waiting, wondering. Hillary walked through. No cart this time, no sandwiches. She walked right up to Aggie. She leaned in close. He forced himself not to flinch away. Not that there was anywhere he could go. She was his only hope. She sniffed him. She smiled, showing her missing teeth. You are better. Aggie shook his head so violently it rattled the chain in his flange. If he was better, they would take him away like the others. I'm still real sick. I need my medicine. Hillary laughed a light sound that anywhere else in the world would have sounded delightful. <laughs> you understand, she said. You are smarter than most of those we bring down here. Aggie kept shaking his head. She reached out a wrinkled hand and grabbed his jaw, holding him still. He started to talk, but she put a finger on his lips. Shh, she said. Now I show you what happens if you don't help me. Now we go and see Mommy. Chapter 13 Loneliness 
Robin sat on her couch, Emma's blocky head in her lap, a half-empty glass of wine in her hand. No lights. Sometimes you just have to sit in the dark. Outside her apartment window, the breeze rippled a tree, making shadows of the branches and leaves weave curving patterns against her linen curtains. A day's worth of searching for Brian had taught her that she didn't know the first thing about finding someone who didn't want to be found. She'd checked his apartment, the Hall of Justice, the Bigfoot Lodge. No Brian. She'd even walked around Rex de Pravdachuk's house and visited the spot where Jay Pilar had died. Nothing in those places either. She left at least ten messages. He hadn't called back, not even when she called to let him know that Erickson had just been downgraded from critical to stable condition. How much more messed up could things be? Her poor Brian. What must he be feeling right now? How would she feel if she were the one with that mutation? And as if that weren't enough, Brian knew the family he loved so much wasn't his real family at all. She took another sip of wine. The little bit of light filtering through the curtains reflected off Emma's inner eyes, making them flash a luminescent green. When Robin was upset, Emma always knew and tried to get close. The dog let out a little whimper. I'm fine, sweetie, Robin said. It is what it is. And what was it? It was going through the rest of her days without the only man she wanted. All the wine in the world couldn't chase that away. It was living half of a life. A knock on the apartment door made Emma's head snap in that direction. The dog scrambled up, inadvertently digging her claws into Robin's thigh as she pushed off hard and ran for the entryway. Robin winced, stood up, and set the wine glass down on the end table. She followed Emma to the door. The dog had her nose down at the base of the door. Her oversized tail swished so madly, her rear end almost toppled her over. But she only acted like that when... Robin held her breath as she opened the door. Emma shot into the hall and started circling Brian's legs, throwing her body against him. He reached down and picked her up in his familiar way. Her rear legs dangled limply. Her tail pounded against his leg and her pink tongue flicked madly at his face. Easy, boo, he said. He set Emma down, then turned his green eyes on Robin. Hey, he said. He looked like he hadn't slept in days. He looked hopeless. Hey, she said. He started to talk, then stopped. He looked away. I didn't know where else to go. She stood aside and held the door open. Brian walked in, Emma at his heels. He seemed to be in a daze. He walked into the dark living room and sat on her couch. She sat near him but not right next to him. Emma wasn't as cautious. The black and white dog flopped down on his feet and looked up at him lovingly, her tail thumping a regular pattern on the throw rug. Robin watched him for a moment, then spoke. I looked for you today, she said. I couldn't find you. Oh, I was sleeping. Where? Pookie's car, he said. I think... I just kind of wandered. His beard had grown so frizzy. It reminded her she still had his beard trimmer in the bathroom. She'd always meant to get rid of it, but found reasons not to. She wanted to touch that beard, gently stroke it and take his pain away. I was having some wine. Would you like a glass? 
He stared out into the room, into nothing. Got anything stronger? Your scotch supply is still here. Talisker on the rocks? He nodded in a way that said he'd have taken anything she had. She made him his drink, flashing back to the time they'd lived together when she had loved making him drinks. They'd been equals in most areas of life, but she couldn't help the fact that she liked to wait on him a little. Moments later, she handed him the glass. Ice cubes rattled as he took it. He liked as much ice as the glass would hold. He drained it in one pull and handed it back to her. One another? He nodded. Emma's tail kept up its steady rhythm. Robin refilled his glass, then sat down next to him. She picked up his hand, gently pressed the glass into it. Robin, what am I going to do? I don't know, she said. It's a bit of an unusual situation, to say the least. He nodded, took a small sip. She picked up her wine glass. They sat in the dark, in silence, together. This time she waited until he spoke first. What am I? You're Brian Clouser. No, I'm not. That part of my life is a lie. She wasn't going to argue with him about that one. Maybe she could talk to his father later, see if there was anything she could do. But for now, she wasn't about to feed Brian platitudes. You're a cop, she said. Yes, I know you're fired, but that doesn't change the fact that you're a man who's dedicated his life to serving the greater good. He took another sip. I used to think that was why I did it. But now I'm not so sure. What do you mean? He finally turned to look at her. The room's shadows hit his face, took the light out of his green eyes. I think I drifted into the job because of what I really am. I think I became a cop because I like to hunt. Robin wondered if she looked afraid, because suddenly she was. Brian had said, because I like to hunt, but what he meant was, because I like to hunt people. He took another sip. Some cops kill a guy, and it messes them up so bad they quit the force. I've killed five men. Five. All in the line of duty, all righteous shoots, okay, but still. I don't feel bad about any of them. He turned away again, looking off into nothingness. This new Brian, the one with the emotions turned full on, he was a frightening man. If she didn't already know him and met him in a dark alley, she'd run the other way. But she did know him. There was so much pain in his face. She wanted to take him into her arms, pull his head to her chest and slowly stroke his hair. Brian, there's a difference between being a murderer and being a protector. Cops carry guns for a reason. He turned to face her again. But shouldn't I feel something? Some kind of remorse or guilt, or whatever the fuck the psychologist kept asking me after every time I put someone down. What do you want me to say? If you hadn't done what you'd done, Pookie would be dead. John would be dead, and you'd be dead. You saved lives. It's not like you have an urge to go out and eat babies. He said nothing. Because if you want to eat babies, Brian, I'm going to have to go ahead and ask you to put down the scotch. He kept staring. 
Then she saw the corners of his mouth turn up just a bit. He was fighting a smile. She waited, knowing him well enough to know exactly what would happen next. His mouth trembled once, twice. Then he lost his battle with a laugh. He shook his head. (laughs) You have to be kidding me. Jokes? Now? She shrugged. Maybe I've been hanging out with Pookie too much. Brian's smile faded. The sadness returned to his eyes, and in that moment her soul felt like it would splinter and blow away on the wind. She turned her back to him, then slid onto his lap. He started to react, but before he could say anything, she reached one hand up to the back of his head and used his rigidity to pull herself in for a kiss. Her lips hit his. She felt his beard on her upper lip, on her chin. She breathed in the scent of him, felt it spread through her chest. He started to pull away, so she held him tighter. Her wine glass fell away. She put her other hand on the back of his head, pulling him even tighter, feeling the texture of his hair between her fingers. He resisted, but only for a moment more. Then she felt his arms around the small of her back, squeezing her tight, lifting her as if she weighed nothing at all. His tongue cooled by the icy scotch, found hers. She didn't know how long the moment lasted. It lasted a second. It lasted forever. Finally, his strong hands slid to her shoulders, gripped them and pushed her away so that their faces were only an inch apart. She felt the heat of his breath, smelled the talisker that came with it. I missed you, Brian. I missed you so much. Brian sniffed. She gently kissed his left eye, let it linger there. I should never have pushed you away, she said. He nodded. I shouldn't have let you. Her hand slid to his face, felt his beard in her palms, felt the warmth of his skin. I'm not playing stupid games anymore, she said. I love you. I think I have loved you from the first moment I saw you. The genetics don't change the fact that you're a good man, Brian. They don't change the fact that you're my man. He closed his eyes. Everything feels so much. Just more. Before, all my feelings were kind of, I don't know, kind of muted. Now they're on full bore. It's hard to manage. She kissed his nose. All I need from you is one emotion. Nothing else matters. Nothing at all. Just look in your heart and tell me. Do you love me? Her thumbs slowly moved back and forth on his cheekbones. He stared at her, his eyes still full of pain, but now also filled with longing. He started to talk, then stopped. He swallowed. He licked his lips, then spoke. I love you, he said. I always have, but I couldn't say it. She blinked back tears. You can say it now. We'll figure this out together. I will never leave you, no matter what happens. It's not that easy, he said. I mean the Z chromosome. Other people have it in the things that they do. I don't know what I might do. She kissed him again, 
hard. His fingertips pressed into her back. Robin pulled away from him only enough to speak, her lips still touching his when she did. Stay with me, she said. Stay with me tonight. He looked at her again. Then it was his turn to pull her close. Chapter 14 Hands Just look at them, holding hands, kissing. He could see their tongues flicking in and out of each other's mouths. So unclean. The rage built in Tard's chest. So did the excitement. Everything seemed sharper, more intense. From the breeze blowing off the endless ocean, to the sand grinding under his belly, to the smell of a dead fish that couldn't be far off. They couldn't see him. People couldn't see at night, not like he could. And these people had a fire, blazing orange and hot, a spot of light surrounded by this long, dark stretch of beach. Their eyes would be adjusted to that light. They wouldn't be able to see anything twenty feet outside of their little bonfire. Tard could cover twenty feet in just a couple of seconds. They wouldn't have time to react. They probably wouldn't even have time to scream. There was no one to stop him anymore. He'd killed once, and no one had told him to stop. Off in the distance, a few other bonfires lit up the evening fog of Ocean Beach. Probably bums. No one cared about the bums. But these two, they looked like they would be missed. No one was supposed to touch a will-be. Tard thought about slinking away, maybe looking at the other bonfires to see what was there. But these two, lying there, holding hands, kissing. The boy crawled on top of the girl and started to move. It made Tard feel funny to watch, and that funny feeling made him even angrier. He slowly lifted off his belly and onto his feet, a sand-colored shape that rushed forward, out of the darkness, and into the bonfire's light. You have been listening to Nocturnal by Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. The Nocturnal Audiobook was directed and engineered by Corey Young. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 